Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to this episode of Borough Talks. I'm Angela Clutton, your host, and I'm sitting here today in the studio with uh, an absolutely wonderful lady who I'm very, very chuffed to um, be able to spend the next half hour, 40 minutes or so chatting with. It's Regular Isawin. Regular, lovely to see you. Lovely to be here. It's so nice to have you here. Um, we have lots and lots to talk about. Um, but let's do some basic introductions. Uh, stop me when I get anything wrong. Uh, Belgian and in London briefly came last night going back today. So we are phenomenally lucky to have you in real life rather than just, you know, doing this over a Zoom or something. Um, food writer, photographer, author of six books. Is that right? Um, TV star, Bake Off. So many things that we can get into. Um but what we're mainly here to talk about, although we're not going to talk about it for a while, so I'm going to lead with this and then come back to it. We're going to talk about your latest book, which is called Dark Rye and Honey Cake, which came out, when did it come out regularly? February. Okay. Yeah. So we're now, uh, where are we, middle of May, so it's been out for a few months. So this has been sitting in my kitchen and in my office for a few months. And every so often I sneak a peek at it when I just need a little burst of joy, warmth, beauty, intellect, something to take me away from the kind of day-to-day-ness of stuff. It's just so many levels and layers to this book. I think for people who just, in inverted commas, want to bake something delicious, it's the book for them. For people who want to find out something about food history, it's a book for them. People who want to know something about the politics of particular aspects of Europe, it's a book for them. People want to know something about art history. It's a book for them. People just want to look at lovely pictures. It's a book for them. There are so many levels to it. So we are going to come back and talk about this in depth. But on the off chance that someone's just popped this on and then they're going to go make a cup of tea and then they're going to you know, miss a bit, we're going to start by saying, Dark Ryan Honey Cake, what a triumph. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to hear you say all of these things because that's really the idea of the book. You can use it in so many ways. So many ways. Absolutely. So we're going to come back to that second because that's your latest book. But as I said in the introduction, there are loads of aspects of what you do. But one of the really interesting things is that of your six books, I think five of them have been about British food history. Is that right? So we've got the Downton Abbey Christmas Cookbook, Pride and Pudding, no, four. Pride and Pudding, National Trust, and another one of my absolute favourites, Oats in the North and Wheat from the South. So four of your books have been focused on British food culture. I've done another one, the National Trust Book National of Trust Book of Puddings, absolutely. So you're Belgian, as we just you know, introduced you as, and I'm absolutely fascinated at how and why so much of your work has been based around British food culture. Well, that comes from being an Anglophile. When I was a small child, I heard a nursery rhyme, and it goes like this. Black swans, white swans, who's coming to England with us? But England is closed and the key is broken. Is there a blacksmith in town who can mend the key for us? Now, of course, in, well, in we, need, we, need, we need the blacksmith again. I know, right? It sounds <laughs> a little bit like Brexit. It's it's a little bit scary now. But yeah, I heard that song, and I was... I was 
I think five years old. And I started thinking about this. And I, I came home and I told my mom I'd learned this song. And she was like, look here on the TV. That's England. Because she used to watch a lot of documentaries on the BBC about Stonehenge and, you know, all that kind of heritage documentaries. And I was like, really? So this whole world opened. And I saw Britain as this fairy tale country with castles and princes and princesses and stone circles and mythology and King Arthur and the round table and Avalon and all of that. And it just blew my mind. And I couldn't understand why anyone wanted to go to Disneyland because there was this real country with real stuff that you could actually visit with real history. And even from a really young age... I'm so worried we'd let you down in the reality. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah. But even when from that young age, I wanted to learn about British history. I wanted to learn about those castles and those princes and princesses and kings and queens. So that sparked my interest in history. And I started looking at pictures of history books. And then I started reading them. And that's basically what I've been doing my entire life reading about British history and and learning about all of the stories and all of about... And when did food become? Well, interestingly, I was a picky eater. And I know a lot of children are picky eaters, but when we travelled around Britain, I had this thing about meat where I found it strange that I didn't know where it came from. It, it arrived in these styrofoam boxes in, in supermarkets, and I, I thought that was so strange. And of course, we had, at that time, we had those images of the, the swine flu on the telly. And I kind of linked that with what was on my plate. So I refused to eat meat. And when we traveled around Britain, even at that time, which is like the early 90s, you know, the start of the gastropub phenomena, there were like notes on the menu saying, this is from a local farm where animals are raised in the paddock and, you know, they eat grass and they roam around freely. And my mom and dad would say like, this meat is okay because they, they had a good life. You know, we may, may have passed them when we were driving over to this pub. And that kind of reassured me that, okay, so these animals had a good life. So even back then, I was thinking about what life that the animals have led and and what would be okay to eat or not. Even before, you know, uh, we got into farming and, and, and knowing how everything works. So I started eating meat again uh, when we were traveling around Britain and, and experiencing everything on the menu and and especially what blew my mind was all the Indian foods because we don't have that in Belgium. We do now a little bit. We didn't have used to have that because of course we don't have a connection with India like like you do here in Britain. And I remember that first curry and that first poppadom and it was like, oh my God, this is like this is a magical country. There's so much history. There's so much art. There's so much mystery and, and mythology and, and then there's this food the whole world of food just opened up and the world of flavor opened up and then we would go back home where the food would be just you know tasteless because I mean my mum's a lovely person but she, she can't really cook she just puts dinner <laughs> so, on my mum's she, a lovely person but she just can't cook <laughs> yeah she puts dinner on and she cooks it but she doesn't cook she doesn't taste uh-huh. she doesn't taste she yeah. never uses pepper or salt so it's, I mean, I'm grateful that I always had freshly cooked food, but it's it was not about enjoying food. But it, I find this really interesting, Regina, thinking about your your perception of Britain and food, because I think 
British food has a bit of a bad rap, yeah. generally. And certainly you're talking about early 90s, I think you just said. Mm. So certainly I think in that, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, anything coming up to, you know, 2000 probably, we were, let's say, not exactly acclaimed for the level of our food culture. Mm. And then maybe that is why we're kind of such magpies about absorbing food from these other places yeah. because British food, in inverted commas, sort of, well, hey, what even is that really? But also the perception of what it was was, was not really as being something which is all that exciting. Mm. And then you're delving into it and finding all these things, but looking at it, do you think it's because you're looking at it with a slightly different lens? Yeah, I think so, because I am a foreigner and I'm looking in and I'm looking at things with fresh eyes. So I think that's important because, like, for example, in, in uh, Oats in the North Wheat from the South, there's an essay Gorgeous about tea girl. and toasts. And I've had English friends saying me t- saying to me, we had no idea that toast was such a British thing because if we have an operation in hospital afterwards, we don't get toast, but you get toast. And if you have had a heartbreak, then you don't get tea or toast in Belgium, but you do tea and toast. This tea and toast, it's always where, you know, if, if you visit someone, if you ask for it, you will probably get it, <laughs> tea and toast. So it's those things that you take for granted because yeah. you've grown up here. I don't take them for granted. I see them as being uniquely British and quirky. And I think that's why I was ideal to, to, to write books about, about British food. But nonetheless, I mean, when I was doing interviews in Belgium and the Netherlands, I I got laughed at by press because I was publishing books about British food. I had to really, really fight towards this narrative of, you know, Britain being all about greasy fry-ups and fish and chips and ready meals. And, I mean, I tried to tell people that it was just prejudice. And it's all a little bit political as well between, you know, France and Britain and, you know, Le beef stick, you know, le, le, roast beef, le roast beef. I mean, so I, I had to constantly kind of defend British foods on, on Belgian and Dutch uh, television and, and radio and in the papers and stuff. And it, that wasn't fun, I must say. And it, it stopped a little bit, but it took me, I mean, my first book came out in 2015 and we're now 2023, 20, so nearly 10 years, basically. Um, and it's really hard to change that perceptive about British food abroad, even though British food is wonderful here. And I've always eaten well in Britain, even in the 90s. I mean, the whole world opened up for me. I saw colour suddenly where there used to be just food to sustain myself rather than enjoy. And I wanted people to know. And that's why I started writing my blog back in 2010, when blogs were just a fairly new thing because people were always saying, like, we, we can't understand you are such a foodie and you're into Britain. That just doesn't, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't fit. And I would go, like, just read my blog yeah, yeah. and you'll understand. But I think Borough Market is part of that as as well. In, well, in, in both sort of benefiting from a general awareness changing about how people are interested in you talking about the provenance of meat, thinking people were you're starting to think about where's their food come from and how is it arriving on yeah. our on our plates. You've our done homes. this much longer than any other country, I find, because that's what I try to explain to people that when I was a small kid in start start of the nineties, that provenance was already on the menu. That was already part 
of your food culture. And to be honest, that's always been a part of your food culture because if you look in history, I mean, in, in, in the 1600s, there was a French visitor called Franz, Francois Misson and he wrote about an, the animal husbandry of Britain. Per Kalm, a Swedish traveller, not much later, he talked about the animal husbandry of uh, of England. So you were famous. Yeah, it just all went husbandry. a bit wrong. It, I think it didn't it didn't go wrong that much. I think it's much more wrong in Belgium no. because oh, okay. we don't have animals outside. All the cows that are, you know, all the beef cows and all the, the pork uh, pigs, they are all in stables. They are not allowed to be outside in Belgium because of the swine flu, because of all the, the emissions. So you have so many animals outside because you still have much more land to put them outside. So it's but much better situation over here, even though in Belgium they go like, oh my God, you know, our food is so much better. It's not true because you've got much, you've got so many more different varieties as well. You've got the, the rare breeds that you have kept alive. We, we all have commercial breeds. And the, the funny thing is that now the, 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 the poshest pork in Belgium is called Duke of Berkshire because it's actually Berkshire right. pork. It's, oh, it's Berkshire so interesting, pig. isn't it? So it's, it, it is something that I always laugh about now. Okay, so the most famous pig now in Belgium is actually an English one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think feel this leads us nicely into talking about the market and your work with the market um, because you have been a friend, close friend of Borough Market for a long time and anyone who has over the years seen the glorious market life covers will should know that that's you you know, you for a long time did those beautiful market life covers and they were we were just chatting about it when we before we came on i mean they were they were just like food photography like no one really does talk, talk to us about the market life covers so it started with the kind of the 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 middle page like this uh -huh. middle spread and a borough market asked me to create works of art with produce from the market, which, of course, I love doing because my photography, if you look on, in my books, my photography is, is very much influenced by the Flemish and Dutch master paintings because I feel like I'm, when I'm using the produce or anything, I'm painting with it. And, and I only use natural light because the, the, the light creates an emotion in, in the photograph, which which I can't replicate with, with artificial light because I'll always know it's artificial. And I want that natural light. And all the photos were taken at the market, which is a little bit difficult because of the light in the market is not the easiest one, but, you know, the, the covering. But they asked me to create these images with the produce, and that's what and I that, did. So was that the brief? That was the brief. To so do yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, make amazing. the produce sing, and that's what I did. And I would talk to the traders about it, and like for example, I did this wonderful uh, in spread uh, when it was still the spread, uh, the the middle spread with Dominic from uh, Northfield Farm, and I had this idea that that I put forward to uh, Claire from Borough Market and I said I'd love to do a lamb but taking it apart all the different pieces of the lamb and then photographing it so you can see where everything goes and I did that together with Dom from Northfield Farm and we had great fun because it was it was interesting it was great because the trader you know Northfield Farm they the butchers were involved they felt part of the 
magazine, they f- felt more part of Borough Market because they could create this together with me. And even if I would go like to Ted's Fetch or something or Chegwood, I would ask him like, you know, I, I need this or that. And, and Claire would ring in advance say like, our photographer needs this or this. And then I could just choose and just pick and choose and I could bring back what I didn't need and I could just come back if I needed some more so that I could just get more paint basically yeah, to yeah. create my, my images. That's and a lovely way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I love that working together with the editorial team of the magazine, but also the traders listening to them as well. And and also because sometimes they would give me ideas uh, about new spreads or new covers. And um, that was the most amazing thing that my ideas were also always welcome. And it was working together, really. I wasn't working for them. We were working together. And I think that's the most extraordinary thing about Borough Market. It's It's... It's togetherness. Mm. Definitely, definitely. You do all the photography for your books. Um, I say we're going to come back to Dark Ryan Honeycake in more detail. But that, um, do you think of yourself as being first and foremost a writer or photographer or TV presenter? We're going to kind of come on to that in a second. What Or, or is it all just sort of all melts together into making you who yeah. you, what you are? I think it's storytelling. You can tell stories with words and you can tell stories with images. And for me, when I'm doing my books, it's important that I can put my words and my images together. So what I do is something that, because I'm I'm coming from a graphic design background, I used to be a graphic designer, I write in InDesign, which is the program where the layout is created. So we, the publisher and I, we agree upon the layout first, and then I start writing my manuscripts. And I put the pictures with it. So the book kind of develops. And once I finished a chapter, that chapter has the images. It's layouted. It has the words. And then when the manuscript is ready to be edited, the book is ready. And it's edited in the book. This already. is not the normal process, folks. It's not the normal process. <laughs> Normally you, you'll have a word file and that word file would go around all the different editors and proofreaders. And once that's completely perfect then it it will be put in, in the layout and the design will be made and the photography will be done. And then you're trying to sort of make everything fit, fit together. together yeah. which, and sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's a bit square peg round hole. Yeah, and, and I, I can't really do that because for me, being a writer, being a photographer, being a graphic designer and being a storyteller... It's, it's, I can't have one without the other. Mm. I have to have all my different bits of paint and brushes when I'm creating a book. And I love that my, my publisher understands this and, 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 you know, because it's for them also a different way of working. So they have to adjust to it as well. And, and, I, and, it, and it's understandable that they don't really prefer doing it that way because they have their own system. But they do see that the book that comes out of it is a very personal Work. I mean, they're books like nothing else, like no one else's books. You know, broadly speaking, you know, cookbooks. There is, you know, there is, there is a way that cookbooks happen, and a and a shared base, I suppose, as to how how the formula of how they work. And you know, yes, this is structured. You know, there's recipes, and the recipes are structured as recipes are. But there's just so much. I mean, they are it, it, they are so distinctive, and I do think you know, unique that no one else is quite doing what what you do. I think it's also because I forgot to say my husband is an art director and illustrator so he does the illustrations for the book and oh. the cover designs for the book so that it's all illustrations and all my books like like 
Pride and Pudding, Oats in the North, and then Dark Rye and Honey Cake. They are a trio if you put them together. That they fit, they match together. Oh, because, that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, I'm going to go home and do that on my shelf. Yeah, yeah, make sure they sit match, together. And, and, the, and the spines will match up as well. So it's not like my name would be a little bit lower and then a little bit higher. Everything matches because that's... That's just who we are. I mean, it's it's what we do and we, we, we like things to, to match. But things change as well because for Pride and Pudding, which was my first book, my photography was very dark and I was one of the first photographers to really venture out in this dark uh, photography style. But it was a little bit too dark. So I, I could understand that the publisher said we need a little bit more like... like flashes of color so I integrated that so it's still like you know publishers still has something to say as well I mean they they know I mean they are they have the experience so so I'm, I'm really glad that Pride and Pudding is a very quirky book because it's it's about the history of British pudding savory and sweet there's so much history there even more than there is in Dark Rye and Honey Cake but it's 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 the images are also incredibly historical because I'm using all British pottery historical pottery where I can. It's all historical recipes as well. So this, the food looks very different because it's not modern food. It's very historical food. Um, so so it, it was nice to see, like, how do you evolve from that and to see how my photography evolved from that as well. So it's it's you can always learn and, and, and kind of understand that it can be better and... and, and yeah, so. I think the photography in your latest is just complete sumptuous. That's what I was saying at the beginning about there are so many layers to it. Because you, you can just treat this as just a cookbook, as a recipe book, and just look at all these images. And I defy anybody not to just turn to any page and just think, oh my goodness, imagine just being able to make that, eat that, serve that. There's one, I'm not going to find it, you're going to have to help me out. There's one that's like a like a layered cinnamon bun. That's a terrible oh, yeah. way to describe it. You know yeah. what I mean? I know. You had the fortune de Vervires. Yes, that's basically like a cinnamon bun, but it's it's discs of, of thinly rolled out pastry. And in between, there's basically the feeling that goes into a cinnamon bun or a cannabula. So butter and... and um, and cinnamon and sugar and and it's layered up and then baked and then you'll have of course like a a slice of it and and it's just glorious i mean that is a breakfast of dreams surely yeah yeah oh my goodness yeah yeah just incredible um let's talk about bake-off tell everybody about your role in bake-off so I'm a judge. We are now going to film our seventh season already. And, and this is Belgian. This is the Belgian. Well, that's another reason why oh. you should read Dark Ryan Honey Cake, because even though I'm Belgian and it is in Belgium, it's not called the Belgian Bake Off, okay. but it's called Bake Off Flanders. Because, of course, we've got three language regions in my country and they don't get along. And it's something so many people don't know about when they think about Belgium. We are I didn't. very divided, uh, especially politicians are incredibly divided and they keep us divided as well right. because then they can control us better. And one of the reasons I wanted to do Dark Rye and Honey Cake is because I wanted to, I wanted the book to be a bridge between our language communities because we've, we we are always told that we are very different, but then if if you if I look at our food culture, then there's so many similarities that I I was hoping that if the book came out in also in French and in German, so all the different language communities could read it, that it would be a bridge between us, and then 
you know, there would be a better understanding of each other's lives because if you're if you're Flemish, you'll usually not have any fr- friends in Wallonia or in uh, the the East Cantons or the Ostbelgian, as it's called, the German area. We it doesn't overlap. Okay, everyone stays in their own region, and and then there's Brussels, which is something different as well. It's their own little thing, their own little island in Belgium. And so many people don't realise that, yeah. that we are so divided. So. And then there's quite a lot of that at the beginning of the book, which yeah. is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And about the, the historical context as well as to yeah, how, how that happened. The language border, for example. That's, that's, that's why I didn't want to call the book Festival Baking from, from Belgium. It's called Festival Baking from the Heart of the Low Countries, which is indeed Belgium. But I have to say, I did not know what the Low Countries even meant, really, until finding... I mean, now I know. But only because but but only of your lovely book. It changed. It's like the Low Countries, you know, the borders have changed and they've expanded. And so it's... it's if, if I'm going to write about food history and I'm going to go back centuries in time, Belgium didn't exist. So it was it was not the idea of, of, of calling, you know... It, Calling it Flanders would have been bad as well because then it would have been political. Mm. And that was, um, that's something I didn't want to do. I, did, I, I wanted it to be inclusive for everyone in, 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 in Belgium, but also the border regions. Because if you go to northern France, which is called French Flanders, there are people there who identify with being Flemish, even though they are French nationals. So it goes to show that even though modern borders are where they are, when it comes to culture and when it comes to food culture and and how people feel, borders are irrelevant. So that's why I'm talking about those language borders and I'm talking about how the borders have changed and how they are irrelevant. And that's why there are recipes from northern France in the book, from the border regions of Germany and from the Netherlands, because borders weren't there where they are now today. And, and it's just, it's too narrow what was the response regular to you doing that when the book came out, to you having sort of worked across those conventional borders? Well, the strange thing is that in Belgium, they kind of ignore it. It's like there's the elephant in the room. Okay. Yeah, because if they would look closely to the book, they would see that it is actually quite a political book as well. But they they don't look at it too deeply. They want to kind of just ignore that part of the book, which is really strange. Um, but I hope that it will teach more people about the situation in my country. And for me, that was one of the reasons why I also turned my back to my own country, because there's always this bickering going on in politics. And of course, because it's my own country, that it just annoyed me. And as a child, it would stress me out because my parents would watch these, these you know, political shows all the time. And all that bickering between our language communities, I was, I was really nervous about that and looking at British culture and to Britain like my little perfect version of Britain because of course I didn't as a child I wish I I wish we lived in your version of Britain I know it was a beautiful Britain it was a beautiful Britain (laughs) so it's like oh everything is better in Britain which is of course as a child and at home all I could see was this political turmoil and all this kind of French and 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 Flemish speaking people not getting along and hating each other and and fighting and I was like oh my god I don't want to deal with that so I first had to come to terms with that so it took me eight years so I was writing the other books and in my free time I'm always doing research for 
books that I have in the back of my head. So I started collecting uh, old cookery books and reading about my for this one for, for Dark Rye for Dark Rye eight years ago. So that was basically my free time. And then three years ago, I started working on it full time. Um, but then I had so you wrote it through space. the pandemic. I wrote it through the pandemic, yeah. And it it, it was like for me, because um, when Brexit happened, of course, I was shaken. I didn't know that it was going to affect me that much. I didn't know it was going to happen, basically, like so many people. And it kind of shattered my view of this perfect little Britain. And I, I, I felt so hurt. I can't describe it. And I know for some people it might sound strange or odd, but it, I felt really hurt. And Britain changed for me for forever. And I kind of realized in 2016 that it was time for me to start finding my way home again and opening my heart to my own culture. And the first of those steps home was my book, Belgian Cafe Culture, because I was in culinary school in the evenings from the moment I started writing about food on my blog. I enrolled in culinary school in the evenings and my last course was beer sommelier, Belgian beer sommelier. So I saw that we have this big culture in beer, which I already knew about, but I didn't know it was that quirky and that special until I uh, done the, the, the course and we had to go to bars, to cafes for our homework <laughs> It's very funny, but it was really homework. We had to write reports on the beer menu and you stuff poor like that. Thing. Poor thing, aren't I? Yeah, <laughs> but it it showed me a way. Like um, we we have this beautiful thing, our Belgian cafes, which are a social institution. Like the, the 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 landladies, the old landladies are aunties and grandmothers to people from their community, and you know the 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 knitting club meets there, the second cycling club meets in in the cafe, and then I saw that so many of those cafes were closing down, and I went to one that was threatened with closing down and I talked to the people there and I heard how important that it is for our Belgian society. It's basically the glue of our society because it it keeps elderly people and young people, it gives them a place to still meet and have a conversation. People who come from their office working on laptops, but also people who work in the harbour, you know, or in the docks or, or in or, or working in a shop. And you see so many different people are meeting in this cafe. So it's basically a crossroads where, where people still meet. So I understood that this was a very special place and it was under threat. So I wrote a book about that with photographs and the history and just basically to to catch that history and catch that heritage before it's gone. And has has it continued to decline? It has continued to decline, yeah, because I was hoping to get some kind of system in place with the book that the those cafes with the, with the valuable interiors from the 1920s, 30s, some some even older because there's, there's like the oldest one is 1500s, to give them some kind of heritage protection. But the problem is that the cafe owners, they don't want that kind of protection because they don't want people telling them what to do. So it's kind of, you know, on the on the, on the the one hand, they want it to be protected, but on the other hand, they don't want anyone interfering. So that's why it's dis- disappearing. So there are already a couple of the cafes in the book that have disappeared when the landlady died. 
Um, and I was just fortunate to kind of, you know, still uh, write about it and photograph it. So so it's not lost forever. Yeah, so it's very important to kind of preserve yeah. those things, to kind of yeah. be able to get that of a moment of yeah. you know, what's, what's happening. And that planted the seed, that planted those first little, I would always say like tiny little stones, like kind of little pebbles for my pathway home. That's the book that started those you know, little pebbles for my pathway home. And then I just started researching our culture and, and our history and art and further and further and further until my heart was full of it. And and that's what Dark Cry and Honey Cake is. It's my way home and it's it's the most emotional thing, home. And I didn't realize that it was. And I can now completely understand people who are displaced and had to run from war and 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 economical situations leaving home i mean home is is such an emotional thing and i i can understand that now and i think it's a privilege that i've been able to discover this through writing this book let's talk about the name of the book dark rye honey cake why why they why they the title well, I wanted to call the book Carnival, but wasn't allowed to call it Carnival because, of course, Carnival is a big part of our uh, food culture in Belgium and in the heart of the Low Countries and the Low Countries in general. Um, so I had to come up with a different title. And because it's a personal book, I thought, well, what is the backbone of what I grew up on? What What is the food, the, especially the baking? What What is the food that I grew up on, which is the backbone of, of, of my existence? And there's dark rye bread that I ate with, uh, our, our, it's called um, platakas or um, white cheese. It's, it's, it's like very thick quark. And then... We would spread that on uh, on the dark rye bread, the sticky dark rye bread, and top it with slices of radishes, and and that's what I grew up on. I, I didn't like like meats on my on my bread, or I don't didn't like like things like uh, chocolate bread. I didn't like that. So my mom was like, "Try that," and I started eating that. So radish. that's all what I ate. That's all what I ate growing up. And she, my my mom was really glad because it's very nutritious. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that sticky dark rye bread, and then you know you got the quark, so you got the protein, and then you've got the radish, so you've got you know your, your veg. So I would eat that, and then as snacks in the afternoon, and sometimes like a sweet treat, I would have honey cake, which is paper cook. The recipe for paper cook uh, is pepper cake uh, in the book, which is our uh, region's gingerbread, basically. But because ginger ginger isn't our main uh, spice uh, in our gingerbreads, it's not called gingerbread, of course. It's uh, pepper cake or honey cake. So I thought this is was going to be the title because that really tells the story about my origin and it is a personal book. And I think it really does. It's, so, it's such a lovely title. It's so evocative. It sort of, sort of tees you in. Um, and I've decided the, what, the thing I, that is missing from my life is a waffle iron or, oh, yeah. or indeed several waffle yep. irons <laughs> <laughs> because there are like you, you have 14 waffle recipes. Yes. Yes. Because yeah. I think that's one of the the major discoveries researching this book is that yes, we really are the the <laughs> waffle country. I mean, because it always annoyed me that in the states it's always like the Belgian waffle, and then you would see the Belgian waffle, and it's it's already three different types of waffles that they call the Belgian waffle. Um, but yeah, 
if I look at uh, the historical cookery books and how many waffle recipes there are in those books already from a very early time and how they evolve through the ages, then it's very clear that like what pudding is to Britain, that's waffles to Belgium. Do you know how or why? Why why are you waffle-tastic? <laughs> well, with it, when it came to pudding in Britain, I had this theory because we had those so boiled puddings as well in, in all regions, in, in the low countries, but and especially also they were also in Spanish cookbooks and Italian cookbooks, but it, it didn't catch on because I think um, you in Britain needed more, you know, warmth and sustenance that like a, a boiled and, and steamed suet pudding brings. And we needed that less because our climate is is less um, less rough. And I think with waffle irons, I'm uh, with waffles. I haven't been able to narrow it down completely, but I think that it's because of our art. There's so many depictions of waffles in Low Country art and Flemish art that people started to associate it, it, it with the kind of the pride of you know origins cuisine and we are very good at at paintings uh at, at art with 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 food it's it's extraordinary to see how how vast the collection is of still lives involving food and allegorical paintings involving food and especially baking and there's so many waffles and waffle irons depicted that i think it's it's because people so Painters would paint what they would see in daily life and they would embellish it to fit in their perfect painting. But then the people would look at those paintings and they would understand that this was something from their culture and they would continue to celebrate that part of their culture because they would see it in those paintings. Like, for example, we there's a, 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 paint, there's a lot of paintings in the book that are described as well. Uh, with the stories in the book. And there's this painting of uh, St. Nicholas, the, the Feast of St. Nicholas. And what's extraordinary about, extraordinary about that is it was painting during the Reformation when depictions of saints were discouraged and also illegal. And we all know that this is a painting for St. Nicholas because all of the food which is depicted on that painting is still the food that we associate, or still the bakes that we associate with the Feast of St. Nicholas today. So it was so important even back then, those typical bakes of St. Nicholas. It was so important then that they knew that they didn't have to depict Saint the Saint Nicholas. They didn't have to depict him. They just had to depict those bakes yeah. that people would all associate with that feast. And then everyone would know that it was a St. Nicholas painting. And so, so the painter would look at daily life and depict those bakes into his painting. And then all the centuries after that, because that was painted in the 1600s, all the centuries after that, we would look at those paintings and we would still recognize this is the Feast of St. Nicholas. And maybe we would, even if we would forget about what kind of bakes are traditional, we could look at that painting and we would... You're so... Actually, I never it. really thought of it quite like that because, of course... Yeah, if we if there was a painting or a photograph that had mince pies, turkey, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd know, know that was Christmas. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah, the food tells the story. Yeah. It's almost like Instagram yeah. in, in, the, in the 17th century. <laughs> you know, today, if, yeah. if you start seeing pictures of hot cross buns, you yeah. know that yeah. Easter is near. And 
in the past, that was the same thing with, with, with paintings. And of course, they weren't uh, always in public view but because many of those paintings that are also in the book were privately owned but were sometimes hung uh, in in living rooms as kind of an anarchy because that painting from St. Nicholas, that would have been illegal in those days. So so it's it's anarchic, basically. And we think of it like, oh, it's a nice painting with lots of cakes and bakes and gingerbreads, but that would have been a dangerous painting. And that's why, you know, again, it's saying about the book, there is so much to it. You can make one of 14 waffles and at the same time just immerse yourself in all these historical, cultural, political stories. Regular, how many waffle irons do you have? Oh, goodness, I have never counted them. I think I've got... Uh, I think I've got about five electric ones. And then two of those have like plates that you can switch with different types of, of, of waffle imprints. So those, those are the electric ones. And then I have about 10 antique ones. And they vary in, in kind of size. Do you use those and, or are they purely for Well, love? I tried using them for, for you know, the, the, the pictures in the book. But I mean, I don't have an open fire I don't have a coal fire either, so it was. I have an aga, right? So it's essa, but it's like an aga, and I tried it on there, and it worked. It worked, but yeah. I mean, the the electric ones are far more easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I must say, my dad really regrets uh, the 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 advent of uh, electric uh, waffle irons because he would always say that they were poor, and they when the waffles would be baked, it would be a family thing, and the children would all help with the batter and they would, you know, watch the whole process of the batter being made oh, and wow. then they it would, would, would be placed in the cellar to rest and then they had to wait and then the batter would come out and they would heat up the waffle iron to put on the stove and they would see the waffles being baked and they would help and they would scrape off the the excess batter from the waffle iron on the outside and they, they would, would... Again, it's what you're saying about the cafes, it's food connecting Generations it's connecting people, generations, yeah. it's connecting people and, and they would love doing that. And then my dad said that my grandmother, she she worked, as my, my grandfather was a sailor, so he wasn't around for six months a year. And um, so she had to work incredibly hard. And because the kids loved waffles, she thought, I'll save up for one of the first electric waffle uh-huh. irons. And she, once the waffle iron was there, she was in the kitchen by herself baking waffles and nobody was watching yeah. the process of waffles being baked. Yeah. And my dad now realizes that, yeah, that was a shame because that's something that we did as a family. We didn't watch TV because they, they didn't have TV. They they watched the waffles being baked, which is a beautiful thing. Isn't it? So uh, while I am really glad to have electric <laughs> waffle irons because it makes... because. It, my dad always says as well that the, the waffle iron was wielded by granddad because it's really heavy. It's cast iron. It's so heavy to use. So the, the, the electric ones are far easier to get a quick batch of, of waffles yeah. out. And we have really decent ones, of course, in, in, in Belgium. But you can get them online for very little money these days. And, and of course, if you fall in love with waffles then you can buy some more waffle yeah. irons. It's great fun. It's great oh, fun. And you see the pictures in the book and you read about them and you just sort of find yourself just kind of almost drooling on the pages. I mean, they're just, you know, phenomenal. Regular, we got so carried away talking about waffles and about your gorgeous book. Um, we have didn't even really touch on Bake Off. Oh, 
Yeah, but what's to say? What's everyone to say knows. Everyone knows Bake Off. Okay. It's great fun. There's also also Junior Bake Off, which I think is even do you cooler. Do that as well? I do that as well. I judge uh, Junior Bake Off as well, and I think that's the greatest privilege of all because I think that's really important to say. When I see those kids create these incredible bakes with fantastic flavors, I'm so hopeful for the future mm. that kids are getting involved and baking and 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 I mean the level that they bake at sometimes it's it's just incredible such small children they will tell me I have been baking since I was 5 years old I think that's incredible and and hopeful for the future that kids are still baking not just sitting behind their computers and and yeah creating beautiful things and bake off also is a beautiful thing because you know you can't win, you can't win a car or money you just <laughs> you just get this really ugly trophy that you can't really even put on on the mantelpiece yeah, because yeah. it's like it's a cake stand with a print on it it's really ugly it's all you win is the honor which i think is great and to see how these bake off contestants always kind of become groups of friends year after year I think it's just the most wonderful thing. It makes me very hopeful for mankind and for the future. Baking brings people together and food brings people together. And and I think that's going to be our salvation. Regla, I think there is no better way to... Where, where can we possibly go from there? I think they, they are definitely the final words for our podcast. Thank you. It's been absolutely lovely to sit here and talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Lovely. And thank you all for listening to this edition of Borough Talks. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market Traders.